Hello, and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. Composer Mark Satterwhite's music has been performed throughout the U.S., Europe, Japan, Australia, Latin America, South Africa, China, and South Korea. Among the groups who have recorded and performed his music, the Boston Symphony, the Utah Symphony, new music luminaries like Eighth the Blackbird and the, new, and the Pittsburgh New Music Ensemble, and many more. He's received residencies at the McDowell Colony and the Atlantic Center for the Arts, He's currently professor of composition and music theory at the University of Louisville School of Music, where he also directs the Gronemeyer Award for composition. Mark, it's an honor to have you on the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. On your website, you have a lovely uh, personal statement that is sort of an extension of your bio and talks about your formative years. You talk about being born and raised in West Texas, starting out on piano, um, but switching to bass because you were so tall for your age. It's a, it's a really neat story. Um, and I usually start the podcast by kind of getting some background. So I was hoping that you might just uh, take us back and tell us about your journey. Uh, feel free to go back as far as you'd like and kind of fill us in. Well, sure. Um, I had an uncle who was uh, a school band director, but otherwise no musicians in the family. But when I was a kid, my parents noticed that I would always gravitate to a piano if there was one in the vicinity and just start plunking around on it. Um, you know, I wasn't one of those child prodigies who suddenly was playing Chopin etudes by ear, um, but there was just something about the piano that drew me to it. And so uh, you know, my parents bought a piano and started me on piano lessons. Um, and it caught on. Again, I was never going to be a professional pianist, but I enjoyed it and, and you know, was pretty good at it. And then, um, as you mentioned, in the seventh grade, I got tapped to play bass in the junior high orchestra because I could read music, because I played piano for several years. And I was tall for my age. Uh, a lot of kids subsequently outgrew me. Uh, but I had uh, an earlier growth spurt than many, and so I, I was big enough to handle the bass. Uh, and, of course, at that age, whoever thinks that's going to be what you end up doing with your life. Um, so I took up the bass and quickly realized I was a better bass player than a pianist and that the competition in the bass world was much uh, much lower than it is in the piano world. Huh. And um, I really, really enjoyed playing in orchestras. I mean, starting with the junior high orchestra. In high school, I played in the local community orchestra as well, uh, as well as a really good high school orchestra. I mean, we played Beethoven symphonies and, um, you know, serious repertory. Um, so I enjoyed that quite a bit. And my uh, piano teacher was a composer, and my bass teacher was a composer. And somewhere along the line, I just started composing. It just started getting interesting for me. Um, I went off to college really thinking I'd be a bass player for my, for my life, although I um, kept composing and was very interested in it. And then after college, I was part of this um, diaspora of young American musicians working in orchestras in Latin America. Um, when I graduated from college, it was at the height of that first oil boom, and 
countries like Mexico and Venezuela, Brazil, countries that had oil were just awash in money. And uh, some of that money got spent on orchestras and museums and schools and ballet companies and stuff like that. And I got in on that and ended up living and playing in Latin American orchestras for six years. I had um, my last two years were in a very, very good orchestra in Mexico City, uh, the Mexico City Philharmonic that had a really kick-ass bass section that was just so much fun to play in. Um, but, you know, this was then when the oil bust was, oil boom was turning into an oil bust. Um, there was a lot of political and economic turmoil in Mexico. Um, and as I, as I describe it, I had a kind of double epiphany. Um, I had the epiphany where I realized I wasn't going to get in the Chicago Symphony. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a good bass player. I'm even a very good bass player when I'm in shape, but I just wasn't at that level. And I also realized um, that at the ripe old age of like 27, I was getting tired of playing the same top 100 classical favorites over and over again. Yeah. You know, much as I love the Beethoven symphonies and the Brahms symphonies, um, you know, and I do, I still love those things to these days. I was really getting, I was kind of getting tired of them already and added that, you know, to the fact, you know, my earlier epiphany, I, I realized if I spent the rest of my career playing the same hundred pieces over and over again in second or third tier orchestras, um, I was not going to be happy. You know, plus I decided it was time to get out of Mexico for various reasons. And um, so I applied for graduate schools and I ended up uh, going to Indiana which turned out to be a fabulous place for me. I got to study composition with John Eaton, one of the greatest and sadly more unsung composers of the last half of the 20th century. And I studied bass with probably the most important bass teacher around at the time, Murray Grodner. So, um, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> probably more than you wanted to know. But no, kind of no, 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 this is... This is great. So tell me a little bit more about the time in Latin America. What what were the years that you were there that you were covering? I was in I was there 1976 through 1982. Okay. Okay. About the middle of both years from okay. July to July-ish. I don't remember the exact dates now. I started off in of all places El Salvador. It wasn't an oil country, but they were still trying to beef up their cultural institutions. So I played a couple of years in the orchestra there. And uh, this was a real turnaround for me, you know. Um, you know, I didn't grow up rich by any means. In fact, I grew up in fairly modest circumstances. But, you know, I got to, and I, I was vaguely aware of the fact that somewhere out there in the world there were poor people. Mm -hmm. uh, but El Salvador was just a slap in the face of, yeah. of real-world awareness. Yeah. Um, you know, and I would, I'd always been kind of moderately conservative politically at that point. Um, you know, of course, these days, uh, I would, that would, nobody would call me that, but in those <laughs> days, I, that's what they did. Uh -huh. have. Um, and I just started gradually seeing that the, the presuppositions I grew up with just weren't true there. 
there was no upward mobility. Yeah. Um, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. So that was eye-opening. And it was also kind of interesting to me trying to reconcile this sort of esoteric thing that I do, um, you know, playing in a symphony orchestra with, you know, the day-to-day -day lives of the people there. Yeah. Um, you know, so that was an eye-opener on just all kinds of levels. Uh, I did basically 180 on my political beliefs and became much more political. Hmm. Um, well, it's it's interesting, this this time that you spent there in Latin America has, uh, from, from what I can tell of your music, what I know of it uh, so far, it's really resonated so strongly throughout your your creative work so so that time must have been a very powerful and and resonated like like a like a water drop rippling out you know even to this day you're still uh, seem to be writing pieces uh, about Latin America or Latin American issues and uh, so it, it must have resonated very strongly with oh absolutely with yeah. um, not so much overtly in, in the musical influences I mean I don't quote Latin American songs, um, the rhythm creeps in, in in what I think are subtle ways, but I was always interested in, in you know, hemiola and polymeter and, you know, a lot of Latin American music revolves around that. And so that, you know, th that kind of crept in, although it's not, you know, just, uh, you know, I like to be in America. <laughs> Kind of thing. <laughs> right. It's, I think, at a more subtle level than that. <laughs> right. Choice of topics. Yeah, if you look at my catalog, just lots and lots of the pieces have to do with the time I, I, I spent in, El it, well, in all of Latin America. Yeah. Um, and subsequently, I moved from there and spent four years in Mexico, two years in Guadalajara, and two years in Mexico City. And I still go back. In fact, my wife and I are going back to Mexico for about a week this summer. Oh, great. And, you know, every two or three or four years, um, I got to go back to Mexico. Yeah. Well, I, I uh, haven't spent much time there. I've been to Mexico City, but I but that was when I was a kid, you know, a long time ago. So I uh, haven't really spent any time there as an adult. But I have been to recently to Central America. I had a couple of students from Panama ah. who, who were terrific and uh, just uh, really, really great musicians. And uh, so I've been there a number of times to... Uh, play concerts and do educational uh, things in the music conservatory and uh, played with the National Symphony with some of my students. Uh, one of my students arranged that. And oh, how cool. so, I, so I spent some time there and then uh, got invited to play at a percussion festival in Colombia a couple of years ago in Bogota. Mm -hmm. so, so I've been to you know, Central and South America a little bit, but not, not much. My wife has spent some time in Brazil, and uh, so I, I always find, I just found it fascinating, especially the first time I went to Panama, you know, the city just growing out of the jungle. It's fascinating, absolutely mm -hmm. fascinating. And every time I've been back, it's been a little different, you know, and, uh, and Panama is really interesting just because of the whole history there and the connection to the United States and the canal, oh, yeah. and I mean, it's fascinating, so... Um, I've always been interested in in this and um, 
when I was uh, doing all my doctoral work, I, I did a lot of research and, and uh, getting in touch with Peter Garland, who spent a lot of time in Mexico living in some mm-hmm. of the Indian villages in Mexico, which which you couldn't do here in the States. I mean, you can't just go and live in the, the pueblos in New Mexico, you know, So, but he did that in Mexico. And um, anyway, so... Uh, I think shared some common interest there with with you and your work and and this uh, and some of these things. But yeah, you mentioned that these uh, the, the musical stylings or or the the folk music cultural music of this uh, of Latin America didn't doesn't creep into your work. But certainly the socio political some socio political issues uh, certainly uh, creep in. And um, there's one piece maybe we can as a sort of transition point to kind of talk about some of your music directly. Sure. Uh, Maybe we could talk about this piece. The name of the piece is Victor Hara's Hands. Yeah, Um, that's that's a recent piece um, for solo guitar. This was written for my colleague Steve Mattingly here at the University of Louisville, who interestingly... um, grew up in Louisville, and when he was in high school, came to U of L and took my music theory courses hmm. as for college credit. So uh, I've known Stephen a very long time. Um, he's a fabulous guitarist. Um, went off to Eastman and Florida State and Germany and is building a wonderful studio here. But anyway, he has asked me to write him some pieces. And um, the story of Victor Hara... Um, is one that's resonated with me for a very long time. Um, just to give a little background, um, Chile had its own 9-11 uh, because the uh, coup d'etat, which put the Pinochet regime in power, happened on September 11th of, I believe, 1973, maybe 1974, but um, in that vicinity. Uh, Victor Hara was a singer, songwriter, actor, theater director, activist, uh, fascinating character, part of this movement called the Nueva Canción, New Song Movement in Latin America, one of its luminaries, along uh, with people like um, Vila Taparra, Mercedes Sosa, um, and others. Um, But um, he was, at a time, one of the most popular performers in all of Latin America, Um, wrote songs that are still being sung today. Uh, And he was, uh, you know, an outspoken critic uh, of, uh, well, he was an outspoken socialist, a supporter of the uh, uh, Salvador Allende government, the democratically elected government, which Pinochet threw over. And along with lots of other people in the days following the coup, uh, Victor Hara was arrested and taken to uh, the Estadio Chile, the big football stadium in Santiago. And hundreds of people were held prisoner there during this period. And um, he was beaten and tortured. Um, His hands were destroyed. And then he was killed. his voice silenced. Um, He's just one of the more famous ones uh, 
that that happened too. You know, and I'd always, I'd sort of mentally filed away as, you know, it sounds a little cynical, but as potential subject matter for peace. Uh, you know, I make mental notes and actually sometimes physical notes about titles or subjects or maybe a poem I want to set to music sometime. And when Stephen asked me for a solo guitar piece, this just instantly came to mind. Um, so it's in two movements. The first one is called Estadio Chile, Takata. And then the second movement is called Canto Elegiaco, which just means sad song elegy, something along that. So a fast driving movement followed by um, a more lyric movement. Uh, you know, and it doesn't sound anything like Victor Jara's music. Um, I adore Victor Jara's music and I love that whole kind of folky movement that he grew out of, which is, you know, kind of, it's the rough equivalent of the folk music um, revival in the, in the U.S. in the 50s and 60s. Mm -hmm. You know, Latin American singer-songwriters discovering their folkloric roots and then writing songs, continuing that tradition. I mean, music doesn't sound anything like his music. Hopefully, it's uh, it, it will resonate with people who who know the story, regardless. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> this uh, it, uh, the story was, of course, reminded me of when I was a student at Cincinnati. Uh, the percussion group Cincinnati has some arrangements of Chilean songs from this era, I believe, from the early seventies. Sure. Um, yeah. That they play as sort of their core repertory, and so uh, so when I when I came across your piece, I thought, oh, uh, you know, it's the same sort of it's another story from this uh, from this time, and so with with this kind of idea, why do you feel that it's important to make pieces like this? Uh, I mean, certainly uh, it's important to remind people of this history, but what what is it that uh, what is it that resonates with you? With this, with this story in particular, or, or bringing up issue-based works. Well, I, I think it's a, it's a complicated thing. But in in my mind, even before I went off to Latin America, um, I was always kind of more attracted to, I don't know, the tragic side. You know, I, I find Shakespeare's tragedies more interesting than the comedies. Um, I generally like serious movies more than funny movies, although I certainly like funny movies too. Um, I always had this kind, and I like sad songs better than happy songs. Um, you know, we talked about the folk music movement in the United States. Besides classical, folk music was my first love. You know, and give me a 20 stanza minor key folk song with everybody dead at the end, and, you know, I'm just in heaven. Um, <laughs> You know, for just whatever reason. Yeah. Um, you know, and 
you know, I went to Latin America and I saw this tragic side to life that I had just not experienced before. I mean, lots of people had, but I had not. And Mexico in particular has this, you know, just fascination with with death. Yeah. You know, the Day of the Dead celebration is just the start of it. You know, I think the um, um, combination of the sort of militant Roman Catholic conquerors and the um, really bloody Aztec religion, you know, combined to form something really interesting that just doesn't exist elsewhere. So that factored in. And then not long after I moved back to the States and had started graduate school, my mother committed suicide. Um, she'd had um, physical and mental health issues all of her adult life. And it honestly wasn't much of a surprise, although it was a shock. That just sort of threw me into a tailspin for years. Between that and all this Latin American stuff that was still processing in my subconscious, much of which you know, it was dark and tragic. Um, I don't want to overemphasize that. There's a, there's all kinds of aspects to life in Latin America. Yeah. Um, you know, many of which are joyful, but, you know, the sort of total impact on me was more on the sadder side of things. Mm -hmm. And um, they all kind of combined together. You know, my mom's death, you know, those experiences I'd had so recently in Latin America... And for a long time, a lot of the music I wrote were essentially elegies. And to some extent, that's even true to this day, although down through the years, I mean, this was 1983 that mom died. You know, if you look at, if you had a chronological listing of my works, you'd see the, the fewer and fewer of those and more and more uh, pieces on other topics. But, you know, it's still in my psyche still uh, a big part of what I do yeah. and in the other you know in terms of the political things you know that's such an interesting topic you, you don't know how much good any kind of political art is going to do right um, you know but but occasionally there are these things that come along and just change everything uh, I mean Uncle Tom's Cabin changed everything I mean it, or it was the catalyst yeah it didn't single-handedly uh, do that, but it was just one of those things that was important. You know, songs like uh, Which Side Are You On, um, you know, so intimately associated with the labor movement. Vonnegut has um, these things where he talks about, you know, he's somebody when he was writing Catch, uh, not Catch-22, uh, Slaughterhouse-Five. Um, you know, somebody asked him if it was an anti-war book, and he said, yeah, I guess it was. And, you know, he said, the guy said, well, why don't you write an anti-tornado book? You know, the underlying thought being that you do just about as much good. You know, but then elsewhere, Vonnegut says that he thinks of art in terms of being the canary in the coal mine. You know, the coal miners would take canaries in, and they would respond to the poison gas Quick, more quickly than the humans, and if they saw the, I mean, sad, but you saw the canaries keeling over, it was time to go. And so, you know, he seemed to have these contradictory ideas, you know, political art really isn't going to achieve much of anything, but maybe it can, 
And so, and so we have to do it anyway. You know, I don't know if any of my pieces with political subtext have changed anybody's minds about anything or not, but, you know, from time to time, I'm still just compelled to do that. And, you know, you just throw it out in the world and, and, you know, hope, hope something comes of it. Yeah. Well, if, uh, for those of us that are involved with higher education or teaching in any way, for me, and and again, this comes directly from you know my influences from Alan Audi in particular, uh, but also other teachers like Christopher Dean that I had, uh, other uh, percussion teachers who were interested in bigger ideas, you know, not mm-hmm. just uh, ju- not just about the music, but about um, our lives and our contributions to our society and how we can. Uh, contribute to our community, and and that means not just the the larger, you know, sort of political idea of the world community, but our local community, the people that we interact with every day. And one of the things was to um, to share with the next generation of students things that you feel are important that they pay attention to. And one of the ways to do that is to make music, um, because that's what we have as an artist i mean i'm not a i'm not a writer i'm not a painter you know uh, and us as musicians or composers it's what we have to um, to communicate with so i feel like that's the, at least at least for me that's uh, what what draws me to pieces like like this and uh, and would make me want to program them as a performer as a way to um, to show my students you know what what it is that um, that I think is important. We should pay attention to these issues. You know, it's it's sometimes too easy to to gloss over, or you know, in this sort of age that we live in now with CNN and a twenty four hour news cycle, um, a lot of junk. <laughs> you know, there's yeah, yeah. a very little substance, and so anytime that I can uh, do that, uh, uh, I, I always try to program pieces like that, or or make my own pieces that that reflect some point of view or issue that I think is important. And so uh, what, what do you have a response to that in regards to being a, a professor and, and being around students? And Yeah, um, no, I, I, I completely agree with you. I think it's very important, you know, not to just talk about, you know, retrograde inversions and the range of the flute <laughs> in, in lessons. Uh, on the other hand, you don't, you really don't want to try to impose your political beliefs on on students. You know, you particularly don't want to make them feel like that's in any way going to impact your assessment of them. Yeah, of course. You right, know, right. so there's kind of a, a fine line there. That, but you know, the topics come up, and you know, the topics that I don't write a lot of pieces called quintet or sonata. I do, but. Most of them have some kind of extra musical association, and that's true of a lot of my students. And you know, one thing that might happen, you know, a student will have an idea for a topic for a piece or a poem they want to set, you know, and that will launch a, a, a broader conversation about you know, what can music do to express the non-musical, you know, whether it's, you know, personal and intimate or it's you know political you know and that that can become a time to share and you know certainly you know when as a composer i present my music you know i'm occasionally invited to you know give a presentation at some other school 
And on those occasions, I feel perfectly free to talk about my politics because I'm yeah. not their teacher. Right, right. You know, they they know that I'm not going to be in any position to give them a grade or anything. And I'm just there for an hour or two hours. You know, they can ignore me if, if they feel like it. <laughs> um, and so I, I always bring up bring up uh, some of my political uh, leanings and pieces when I present my music. If I'm having a piece performed and they ask me to say a few words about it, um, obviously if it's one of my uh, pieces with political overtones, I, I have to explain that. And so that's another forum for that. Um, like I said, I try not to, you know, with my students, there is that fine line. Right. I want, I want them to know where I stand on things and why it's important in my music, but I also don't want to, you know, do anything inappropriate. Um, you know, honestly, I mean, most most composers are kind of on my side anyway. So there's, you know, I haven't found a whole lot of uh, Rush Limbaugh fans among my composition <laughs> students. Yeah, yeah, we tend to be rather left leaning. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd say on the whole, that's true. I mean, <laughs> Uh, well, let's uh, let's move to a different topic here. Uh, one of the sure. things that um, that I one of the first pieces that I discovered of yours while I was looking for new music was trumpet and percussion pieces for my duo. So I I came across one of your pieces, and uh, it was inspired by uh, the photography of Flor Garduño. Am I yes. saying am I saying that name correctly, Flor yes, Garduño? Yes, you are indeed. And uh, this stunning, beautiful photograph of a, of a man standing by the road, and there's a drum and a trumpet sort of strapped to it and some, and some bags, and uh, it's just this lovely uh, photograph. And so you wrote a piece that was sort of uh, meditation on this kind of photograph. And uh, we could talk about that piece if you'd like. Uh, I, I thought it was really interesting, and uh, we, you did send me a recording, so we could play a little bit of that. But then there's another uh, set of pieces, too, that I, re that I love also is a solo cello piece called Witnesses of Time, which is also uh, uh, on the same photographer's work. So yes. maybe we could talk about either of those pieces. You could talk about how you uh, came across this photography and uh, anything on those topics. Sure. Yeah. When I um, before I came to Louisville, I taught at Lamar University in Beaumont, Texas, not that far from you. Right. Oh, wait. So it, this is I'm just making the connection. Uh, I knew that I remembered your name for some reason. Was Brian Harrington one of your students? Yes, absolutely. That's the connection. Okay. Yes. We, yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. Great. I'm sorry to interrupt. Well, we, yeah, we can no, come no, back no, to no that problem. in a moment. Okay. Sorry. We're very proud of Brian here at U of <laughs> He's done very well done very well since he left us. Great guy and a terrific composer as Absolutely. well. Absolutely, yeah. But you know, when I was teaching there, um, we used to go to Houston rather a lot um, for the symphony and the opera and just whatever. But there was this huge exhibit of Latin American photography. And this was more than 20 years ago now, so I don't remember the venue, who put it together, any of that stuff. It's just too long ago. But, um, you know, I went and um, one of the um, featured artists was Flor Garduño, um, a Mexican photographer. And at the time, I, I, I had not heard of her at this point, but I was just absolutely blown away by her work. 
um, I mean, she does, she uses all kinds of subjects, but a lot of it are the people of landscapes in various parts of Latin America. And this picture called Musico en la Nada, which really is hard to translate, but it's musician in the nothingness or musician in the nowhereness, hmm. something like that. And as you said, it showed this um, old, I'm guessing, itinerant musician on this barren roadside in the mountains and it's foggy and he's got this beat up old bass drum and there's this beat up old trumpet on it and um you know i imagine that he was sort of a one-man band you know he would strap on the bass drum and keep the beat and play the trumpet at local fairs or places and and you know essentially be a busker I mean, I don't know that, but I'm, you know, again, I'm also betting he was just waiting on the roadside for the next bus to come yeah, to take him to the next town. And so, I mean, this just absolutely haunted me, you know, the years I'd spent being a musician in Latin America, although in far, 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 far nicer circumstances than that. Um, but still, I had this kind of kinship of, you know, kind of being, because there were times I was alone and lonely, especially before I learned the language you know, and I could I could just kind of get into this. So um, I had a terrific colleague at uh, at Lamar, our trumpet teacher, a gentleman named Raul Ornelas, who was Hispanic, and um, he asked me to write him a piece. I don't think he had any clue that I was going to come up with this quiet, distant, muted, introspective kind of piece. You know, they're they're mutes in the trumpet all the way through. It's mostly quiet. Um, it certainly doesn't quote any folk tunes. It's just atmosphere. Yeah. Um, you know, lip trills and glissandos and, um, you know, just this very, very introspective piece. Um, not at all what I think most people would expect from a piece for trumpet and, and, and percussion of any kind. Um, you know, so that was fun. Yeah, actually. which is what which is what interested me about the piece <laughs> is yeah. that you know we were trying to find really interesting, uh, unique pieces that use the trumpet or use percussion in an interesting way that wasn't just obvious what you would expect for a trumpet to do and a percussionist to do together, mm -hmm. but to do something um, unexpected, which this piece certainly does. Yeah, and so you know, Raul and uh, one of our other colleagues there performed a fair amount. I came to Louisville, and um, our wonderful trumpet teacher here, Mike Tunnell, uh, took up the piece and played it again a fair amount, made a wonderful recording of it that's on one of his CDs. And, and um, you know, so that piece is out there. And then, as you mentioned, um, I have another set of pieces inspired by her photography that was commissioned by our cello teacher, a gentleman named Paul York. Paul is a real advocate for contemporary music, was always commissioning and performing and recording new pieces. Um, so he asked me to write him an unaccompanied piece. And again, probably didn't expect a 20-minute <laughs> virtuoso extravaganza that I gave him. Uh, but it takes, you know, four of her photographs and um, uh, just tries to express them in music. Yeah. Um, and this is the piece Witnesses of Time. Witnesses of Time, yeah. which is the title of one of one of her books of photography that I have. 
Yeah. It's the overall title. Okay. My, my favorite movement of this, I've been listening to it a lot, actually, in the last few days, is the Tarahumara pilgrimage, the second, yeah. second movement. Could you mm-hmm. talk about that movement? Yeah, sure. Um, it was taken in Mexico, and it shows these dancers on uh, just sort of a flat plain area. They are obviously processing from some place to another, but they're also obviously dancing as they do that. You know, and some of them have some musical instruments and they're all in indigenous costume. Among the instruments they have are some percussion instruments of various kinds. It's just this lovely, lovely image. In the uh, cello writing, there's a lot of percussive effects. You know, the cellist plays coleño, which means tapping the string with, with the wood of the bow, and but also lightly tapping with fingers and hands on various parts of the cello body. Uh, you can't ask them to pound too hard, but uh, they will uh, they will do some light drumming on the instrument if, if you ask them nicely. So a lot of lot of percussive effects on that. And the whole piece does what I really love to do, which is explore the whole gamut of what any given instrument can do. Um, almost none of my music could ever be transcribed from one medium to another. If it's a flute piece, it can only be played on flute. You know, and this is a cello piece. It could only be played on cello, could not be played on bass or transcribed for anything else. You know, and so I, I really put the cellist you know, through his paces on that. Uh, besides the percussive effects, there's all kinds of harmonics. Really uses the cello as, as kind of an orchestra, um, which is, well, that's a huge concern of mine always in my music is, um, you know, getting all the possible colors out of whatever instrument or instruments I'm getting. And I had a particularly fun time with this piece and with that movement. Um, you know, just coming up with those percussive effects and trying to integrate them. You know, you want to do them in service to the music and not as novelties. You know, so that's a challenge, uh, but a a fun one to work with. And, you know, I knew Paul would just play the hell out of it, um, (laughs) you know, and and he did. And, uh, you know, made this just absolutely phenomenal recording of it. Well, uh, I want to kind of piggyback on something that you said as a kind of transition to another point, which is uh, to, to talk about something that is uh, near and dear to my heart is percussion and uh, and something that we share, share a, an interest in, of course. And um, for you, what what interests you about percussion and uh, what, what what's your interest with that that topic? Well, a couple of different interests. I mean, as you know, I'm obsessed with tone color. I mean, I'm not new in, alone in that. Lots of composers are, but it's it's one of my obsessions. And the cool, well, among the many cool things about percussion is that there's 
a virtually infinite number of potential percussion instruments out there. Um, people are inventing or discovering new instruments all the time. Plus, just even among the traditional instruments, um, there's this vast variety of, of instruments. I've also discovered, you know, lots of percussionists are kind of gearheads. <laughs> you know, uh -huh. they, they like to show off their toys, and they like for you to write for their toys. And, oh, you gotta, you got to write for this instrument I found in Burma that nobody else has. <laughs> right, right. Well, because that's a, that's a, you know, as a percussionist, uh, Stephen Schick, famous percussionist Stephen Schick, has this way of talking about percussion uh, in that, you know, he says, uh, you know, in our studios, we might have a thousand different instruments. Yeah. And, and if you have a thousand different instruments, it's almost as if you have no instrument at all. <laughs> you know, there's no, <laughs> there's no one thing that, that percussionists identify with and and there right. is a there is kind of a movement you know uh where people identify as uh an orchestral percussionist sure. or or um, or a drum set player you know and yeah, that's they're, all they're, they're do but they're primarily a tempanist or a, right a outlets player sure right and th th that happens of course but uh, for a lot of us we're we're not we're just we have tons of instruments you know i yeah. i don't i haven't counted i have no idea how many instruments yeah. i have it's probably close to a thousand you know um yep. and that that's everything from a sleigh bell to a snare drum to a vibraphone you know everything in between so right. um anyway so what he was saying with that was that you know there's no one thing that we identify with and so when we get the opportunity to play a piece by a composer who who will allow for these special collections of sounds that have come to mm. define our art, you know, that right. special cowbell that we found or that yes, perfect yes. gong, you know, from Vietnam that we bought or whatever it was, you know, um, those are the things that, uh, that become our voice, you know, yeah. and, uh, and so it's fun to play pieces by composers who allow for that, that it's not just for a, a generic a snare drum or a marimba or something, but we get to dive into our bag of goodies and, yeah, so there's, I mean, there's that kid in the toy shop aspect of writing for percussion. Uh, and also, you know, as a composer, when I'm, say, trying to write a violin piece, you know, I'm competing with centuries of magnificent violin literature that the most dedicated violinist could not cover in a lifetime. Right? And right, exactly. Percussion, percussion, like, say, saxophone, Right, um, doesn't have this huge body of repertory. Yeah, you know, percussion ensemble music, to the best of my knowledge, started in the 20th century. I don't know anything 19th century. Um, I mean, maybe there's something here and there, but so percussionists, again, like saxophone players, are often actually eager for new repertory. Yeah, you know, they don't want to just keep playing Bach transcriptions on the marimba, although. You know, that can be lovely, and of course you can learn a whole lot from doing that. Sure. You know, so there's this combination, there's this just huge array of potential sounds that you can get out of percussion, and then there's the fact that the, the players are actually kind of excited about it, or often in a way that isn't always true about the more players playing the more traditional instruments. 
Well, um, you have a, a, a brand new percussion piece, uh, t- 2015. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, my, my colleague here at U of, at U of L, Greg Byrne, our percussion teacher, again, great advocate for, for new music. In fact, um, this past fall, we he did a whole concert of my music with the percussion ensemble, and we're going to issue a CD of it sometime in the next year or two. Oh, terrific. Just FYI. But he, he likes to play cajon, which, um, for those who don't know, is that wooden box percussion instrument that you sit on. Right. In fact, the word cajon means big box. Box, right. <laughs> Spanish. I mean, that's what it means. And um, um, it's used, uh, where did, you know, I've actually forgotten where it originates. Um, well, it's it's used a lot in Spain, actually, in flamenco. Oh, in, in flamenco. flamenco right. mm-hmm. um, and it's kind of spread from there. Um, but, you know, it's um, a, a very cool instrument. It's like you literally sit on it. And uh, play it with mostly with the hands, but you can play it with the feet. And Greg suggested I might add a, a couple of foot percussion things. So there's, um, I think, a hi hat and what else? A couple of a, a, a small pedal bass drum, maybe a couple of other things. So it's it's very interesting visually watching somebody play cajon because they're it's just so visceral. Mm-hmm. Um, but I came across, uh, I had this idea for the piece. There's um, a very famous piece by Revueltas, great Mexican composer, called Sensamaya, which is in turn based on a, an Afro-Cuban poem by Nicolas Guillén, which is about the ritual sort of, um, well, voodoo-ish. I don't really like that word, but, you know, to communicate, uh, killing of a snake. And it's this, it's almost a chant. You know, when you read the poem, you really want to recite it aloud. It's so rhythmic. And what Revueltas did, um, he didn't set it like a song, but he took a lot of the speech rhythms um, from the poem and put them into this orchestral piece called Sensamaya. Um, it's probably, well, it's certainly his best known piece. And maybe along with Chavez's Sinfonia India, you know, the piece of Latin American orchestra music that's most done. Um, you know, it's very popular and as it should be. It's a terrific piece. So I took the idea of going back and rereading the poem a bunch of times and I listened to Revueltas' piece. And what I did was take some of those same speech rhythms that uh, Revueltas took and incorporated into this piece for solo cajon with some foot percussion. Hmm. So it's it's very active and lively and um, fast, most of it. And hmm. it's a real kind of virtuoso piece. And so Greg has uh, been playing that. Great. And uh, I, I think having fun with it, at least he says so. <laughs> uh, again, I, I, I think I gave him more than he was bargaining for when he asked for a solo cajon piece, I think, but um, he seems to be enjoying doing it. And um, I just had a terrific time writing it. Great. Is there anything else that you would like to talk about with regards to percussion or your uh, interest in that? Oh, no, it's just, you know, percussionists have been good to me. Um, I got to say, I, you know, several percussion ensembles have done my pieces 
you know, I've been commissioned by a bunch. Um, it's, it's always been fun. And, you know, and uh, each piece is its own orchestra, so to speak. You know, I mean, a string quartet's always a string quartet. It's got the same four instruments. Now you can do all kinds of cool stuff with them. But, you know, every time I write a piece for percussion or percussion ensemble, you know, unless it's something really specified like, you know, six marimbas, you know, I get to make up my own orchestra each time. Right. You know, I get to decide which instruments, um, you know, and how they're going to be played in a, in a different way than getting to write for other ensembles. Um, you know, so that's a lot of fun. And like I say, percussionists are usually adventurous in terms of the repertory they're seeking. Yeah. I haven't, I've met very few percussionists, uh, you know, who were conservative musically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, so. Kind of goes with the territory, I think. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just don't, you know, particularly don't get into the classical percussion world if you're not exploratory. Right. And adventurous. Um, right. You know, so yeah, I've, I've, I've just had great times with percussionists. Great. Well, I look forward to getting to know more of this music. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, I think we're reaching the end of our time here. So I always like to ask this last final question and close with this. It's a very simple question. Okay. How does one live and sustain a creative life? Oh boy, that's a hard one. I mean, it sounds cliched, but you just uh, you just have to keep on keeping on. You know, it's every day there are distractions, and you know you got to earn a living and all of that. But you know, you have to find a way to make the time. And, you know, it could be at three in the morning. You know, I'm extremely fortunate in that I have an academic position. You know, I work hard, but they don't work me to death. <laughs> right. You know, and so I have summers and, um, you know, so I have, I have a luxury a lot of people don't, you know, as far as that regard. You know, I'm not, I don't make my living composing, although it's a supplement. But even so, it's sometimes hard. You get caught up in, you know, you're, you know, you teach, you know, there, there's a meeting, there's always a meeting or there's paperwork to do. You just have to kind of claw your way through to the surface and, and find that time to make it happen. And, you know, and to try to keep your own voice. You know, there's so many influences out there in the world today that it's easy to get distracted by that you know you hear something that's cool and you want to incorporate it in your work somehow but you know how do you do that and and still make it yours you know so though that's something else you got to kind of fight through yeah. so i don't know if that really answers it but it, it, it's things i think about when i think about that question yeah terrific uh, people can find your work online, marksatterwhite.com. I'll make sure yep. and include lots of links and sounds in the show notes. So uh, if you're listening and you want to go deeper, uh, those will be some places to look. Mark, thank you so much for being on the show. I really enjoyed speaking with you and great show. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad we made this happen. I appreciate your getting in touch. All right. Thanks. And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter, at ThatJohnLane. You can find the show links and show notes on my website, john-lane.com. 
and follow the show on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in the Stream. Thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music. You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening.